forgive me. Luke 2, not Matthew. Luke 2, 1 through 7. There we go. He hasn't been born yet. We've got to get there. Here we go. Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I want to ask you something, as I have just read a very familiar text that is a very familiar storyline to most of you, if not all of us, as we're gathered to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, do, do these details from this narrative mean something personally to you? Uh, it's a storyline that, again, you, you've heard it before. You've even heard these details where specifically Jesus was born and the broad and then very specific circumstances that this storyline opens up to us. But do they reflect to you personally a God who cares about you intimately and personally and in a detailed way? They should. This is chronicling the very specific detail of the most significant birth that has ever taken place in the history of our world and specifically to the history of mankind. This is documenting historically, specifically, and in a detailed way the birth of our Savior who saves us from our sins for all of eternity. So this is a very specific, very detailed, very important and precise record of that But behind that detail and specificity is a God, watch this, is a God who loves you in a very detailed, very specific, very intimate, and very personal way. It's important for you to know that behind the details is a God who is detailed about your life. And for you to be comforted by the birth of Christ, for this text to mean something to you personally, you have to know that there is a personal God who loves you. One God who loves you so much that he sent his one son for you. That's what this inspired history should mean for you. Uh, The author of this text is the author of this large, the largest of the four gospels, the Gentile physician, Dr. Luke. He, he's a detailed guy. He's a, his profession, his trade, bespeaks detail. As a physician, he's precise. He's articulate. He's laying this out for us through his unique doctor giftedness. 
And as a Gentile, we're not going to read into this too much, but, but in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, as a Gentile, this believer has a heart for his friend, Theophilus. You could find that, chapter 1, verse 4, Theophilus. He wants his friend, which his name, Theophilus, means lover of God. He wants his friend to love God. He wants his friend to know Jesus. That's why, and you can read about this, that's why he wrote this book. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is part two to his writings. He wrote the, the Acts, I'm sorry, it's part one to his writings. He wrote Luke as the Gospel to introduce Jesus, and part two is the book of Acts to record the history of Christ's work through the church as the Gospel spread around the world. So Luke, in both part one and part two, is trying to reach out to his friend, Theophilus. And he takes 24 chapters to do this, at least in part one. He wants to reach him for Christ, and he does it by showing his friend that God cares about big things, and he cares about very minute, detail things. He wants this friend, Theophilus, to be certain of the fact that God is in control of large world events and also God is in control about every intimate, personal detail of your life down to the Son of God being born in an obscure little town called Bethlehem so that he could be the Savior of all who would believe. Very important evangelistic book of the Bible because it shows that all of the Old Testament prophecy that pointed to Christ was fulfilled precisely. And so Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and this is verified through this book of the Bible. Now, I just want to show you that the details matter this morning. We're going to look at some details, and these are familiar words. It's a familiar storyline to all of us, but sometimes we miss the details beneath the surface that make this storyline connect. And I want you not to miss the details here because the details bespeak God's intimate, detailed love for you. Okay, so let's explore a few of these details together. If you're taking notes, Luke, he's comparing a secular king, a world-dominating emperor, to a sacred king. A secular king... Versus the sacred king. Who's going to win? The, 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 the ruler of the free world 2,000 years ago versus the creator of all things, the ruler of the cosmos, Jesus Christ, who is God, very God. Secular king versus sac sacred king. Let's learn about the secular king first. In verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus. Who's this gentleman? Well, he is the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. And as Caesar, he is ruler of the known world at the time. In other words, don't miss the impact of the first phrase of verse 1. He speaks, hey, I'm Caesar Augustus. I want all the world to move around for me. I, I want to put all the world into motion with a word. That's Caesar Augustus. I want all the world to be accounted for right now so that I can count up all that I own. 
That's what he's doing. That's who Caesar Augustus is. Hey, at this point in my story of my life as emperor, I want the world to move around and go back to its original moorings to be accounted for in precise detail so I can count up how much I own. That's this king. He was the dominator. He was the first Roman emperor. He was the first to be named emperor. There was a plaque outside of the temples where he would be worshipped as a god that said, Divine Augustus Caesar, Imperator of land and sea, Benefactor and Savior of the whole world. He was the first man to be called Augustus. He was the first one to be called Augustus, which meant to be revered. It was a, it was a term of reverence. This is to call a man a god and to call him holy. That's what it meant to be Caesar Augustus. It was reserved for idols. And it meant that all the Jews and the Gentiles were obligated to bow down and worship this man. And so Caesar's power put the world into motion. He was, he was politically dominant. He was a man who who was controlling all the politics, and he created what was called, for you history buffs, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. But don't think of it as, as a, a kind version of peace on earth. This was a Hitler's peace. This was a forced submission through political domination. Secondly, he was religiously blasphemous. Again, called Augustus, called godlike in this world. And then thirdly, he was strategically greedy. As I said before, he wanted to count up his kingdom. And he wanted to do this for a couple reasons. First of all, you, you call a census to find out how big your army can be. And so he wants to identify every able Gentile man to be drafted into his army if need be. And secondly, he wants his rule and domination to span all of his empire. So every time Rome took more ground, he's got it under his thumb. And the way that you do that, the way that you keep expanding world domination under your thumb back then was to tax it. Back then, you couldn't send F-15s as a threat flyover to areas that would potentially be anarchy or, or wanting to create problems to your kingdom. And so what you do instead is you send tax collectors. That's why tax collectors were hated back then. Because tax collectors meant Caesar's muscle is coming to town and we're trying to take your money and keep you in a place of neediness where you need the Caesar because you don't have enough money. You're not affluent enough personally, and so you're taxed to be kept under control. That's why the registration is going out. This is a military, political power move from the most powerful man in the known world. Secondly, you see the, the text in verse 2 kind of narrows things one level getting closer to the nation of Israel, which was under this Caesar domination. And Luke wants to point this out, that, that Israel was under specific military watch. Look at verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius, 
which would have been like Caesar Augustus' sergeant-at-arms. This is Quirinius, was governor of Syria. He was the military commander closest to watching Israel, watching God's nation. So Luke is saying, look, I want you to narrow the focus from the world to actually the nation of Israel here, which is being watched by Quirinius, the governor of Syria. This is military muscle. Military muzzle, high-ranking official. This man, would he would succeed Caesar Augustus, and he would be the one running the next census 14 years later after this was found. Why, why is this an important detail? It marks the fact that things were very dark in Israel during this time. The neighboring community of Syria was, was under this political and military dominant leader called Quirinius, and it was a dark time and a dark judgment for Israel. Remember, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and so between Malachi and then the dawning of the gospel, there's 400 years of silence. And so during that silent period of four centuries, you have a lot of dark idolatry and false worship that's going on in Israel, which creates the dark backdrop to a dawning Messiah who was to come. These were dark, oppressive, very difficult times for Israel, and they deserved it. Because they had turned their backs on the Lord, and they really weren't looking, in general, as a nation, they weren't looking for the Savior and the Messiah to come. So it was dark, desperate times, but it was perfectly timed by God, because the dawn had come. Now, this, my friends, was Caesar's plan of domination from a secular king. And now we're going to look at God's plan, verses 3 through 5. This is where God is overriding this king on earth with his sacred king. It's God's plan overriding man's plan. You know, I think it's easy for us to look at political events and political leaders and even cataclysmic catastrophes that happen, just like Hurricane Sandy coming up. We say, you know, God, God's in charge of that in some general way. I mean, I, you just know that even our country, even our unbelieving um, Americans, fellow Americans, they, they believe and have some sense in their conscience that God is in control of these things deep down. I believe that. But it's one thing to believe about God being in charge of big things or even national news events, even horrible things like school shootings and things. I mean, we, we, we struggle and wrestle through how God can be in control of that. But there's some level where as Christians we get there and we go, God, you allowed for your greater purposes catastrophes and wars and, and political leaders who raise up and are dictators and are awful. God, you're in charge of all that. But I want to challenge you that it's one thing to believe God is dominating the big things and in charge somehow of the big things, but personally, maybe you secretly don't believe God is in charge of what's happening to you. Um, the intimate details, the personal things that are happening, the things that you can't make sense of in your life on so many levels, I mean, on so many levels, how you arrived to your circumstances, to your life, to the things that are eating your lunch, the things that are hurting your hearts? Um, do you believe God is in charge of and has orchestrated those things to bring greater good in your life and Christ-likeness in your life, but also for you to have a uniquely designed plan from God that is bringing a greater good to the kingdom of God? 
I mean, do you believe that God has you here on earth for such a time as this to be a soldier for Christ, to advance the kingdom in God's unique way, that maybe you can't put it all together because we don't see it from 30,000 feet, but nevertheless, we understand that we're being used by God in a powerful way. Well, guess what? We're going to learn about two young teenagers this morning, Mary and Joseph, two eighth graders or ninth graders who were uniquely designed it to be a part of history. In the setting of this world history, you've got this very obscure, very insignificant, seemingly insignificant, two teenagers who are huffing it 90 miles, one pregnant with probably a very precarious gait, walking along or on mule, we don't know. Don't believe the claymation movies all in their specificity. We don't know how they were moving along those 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But this is a very obscure scene where, where the narrative goes from the widest point of a worldview over to Syria into Galilee and Nazareth, Nazareth and down to Bethlehem in terms of a very specific, very detailed account of two young teenagers that are moving along and who are being used to radically introduce the most significant event of all time, the beginning of the gospel, the birth of Jesus Christ which initiates, if you look at it in the big picture, the most significant, which is Christ's birth and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, these two young people are being used of God in that way. Do you believe God works in that way for your life? Well, let's look into this very specific narrative where God is overriding Caesar's rule. There's a convergence of kingdoms here, and this is the humble path that God takes. Verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Details matter, my friends. Again, it's a, it's a literary technique to take us from wide world events to very intimate details, from the world to Syria to Jerusalem, Galilee to Nazareth to Judea to Bethlehem. And this census that was happening on a world level was very detailed from God to impact the timing and geography of the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. It all reflects back to a prophecy that I read at the beginning of the hour in Micah, and I would invite you to turn over to Micah. We need to read this verse one more time, Micah 5.2, because this verse is and was fulfilled perfectly. I'm going to show you how unique this fulfillment was. Micah 5, look at verse 2. 700 years before it happened, God through Micah is saying, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, there's two Bethlehems. This is a specific, the specific Bethlehem in Jerusalem, not the one up in Galilee. O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who 
are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's so little. It's so obscure. It's so narrowly populated that it's not even among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, when you think of prophecy, you need to think in terms of it being perfectly fulfilled. This is not some obscure happenstance. This isn't some cult-like idea like, you know, the Mayan calendar goofiness that people, you know, were paying attention to. This is specific, real, concrete prophecy that was fulfilled in a specific place in a specific time to prove to us by the illumined, spirit-written word of God that it's all real and it is all true and we stake our soul's deliverance upon it. What you see here in verse 4 are two very submissive, humble teenagers. First of all, Joseph, verse 4, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee. Now he's going up, not geographically north. He's instead going uphill. He's going uphill. He's moving south, actually, 80 or 90 miles from where he was, from where they were. But he, they're going uphill. That's the point. In wind and the cold. It's the cold season. Uphill in mountainous terrain. They went up from Galilee, verse 4 says. And Mary is mentioned as well, to be registered with Mary. Why did Mary go? Well, I don't know that this is specifically talking about Mary's registration. There's no record that she's from from that area. And if we were to look at this very carefully, you need to understand that Joseph himself was not raised in Bethlehem. It's that his family came from, his ancestry comes from Bethlehem. That's what's going on here. God's plan is bigger than Joseph's life in that he's just going back to his original moorings for registration. That's what went on. If we were to take it even farther back to the Old Testament, we would understand that this is to connect the birth of Jesus Christ through Joseph checking in with his registration. It's to connect it back to the king of the Old Testament, the premier king, King David. And King David, if you were to look in 1 Samuel 16, when David was originally anointed as a shepherd boy, his father, Jesse, is from Bethlehem. That's what 1 Samuel 16 tells us. So it's a historical record where you have David, who's the ultimate king of Israel, foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ. But David's not even from Bethlehem. It's Jesse. The prophecy is bigger than these people, but it's all working in perfect detail to fulfill Micah 5.2. David's moorings through his father Jesse go back to Bethlehem and Joseph's moorings through his family and his ancestry goes back to Bethlehem and all of this was fulfilled Micah 5.2 perfectly. This is why Joseph was called by Gabriel the son of David. It's to connect these details so that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is the Messiah. Now, why did, why did Mary go with Joseph just to open this up? Uh, Mary, you know, some people say, well, Joseph and Mary knew what was going on. That's why they went there. 
I mean, she's pregnant, you know, there's, she's about to give birth. She's obviously in a third trimester scenario. So why is she going there as well? Why doesn't Joseph, you know, haul the mail and go there and get it done? Well, it's because Joseph and Mary, watch this, are betrothed. They are legally connected though before consummation in the way that you would be engaged at that time. Engagement was a, a legal step where they were pre-married. They're in a pre-married state. And so much so that when Joseph found out from Gabriel, the angel of the Lord that came to him and said that you know Mary is pregnant, it was correcting something in Joseph's mind. Joseph didn't want to shame Mary but he wanted to let her secretly go away and he wanted to divorce her and cut that betrothal off for her sake, but also probably so that Joseph could save face himself. Because where did this pregnancy come from? They had not consummated. But at this point in the story, Joseph was all in and he believed the word of God that had been given to him by Gabriel. Um, Both the the account in Matthew, if you tie that together with the account of Luke 1, you find that it was Gabriel specifically who was speaking to Joseph and to Mary in two separate accounts. And Joseph and Mary believed the word of God that this was the Messiah. But I don't think that Mary went to Bethlehem to try to connect up Matthew 5, I mean Micah 5, an Old Testament prophecy to this event. Mary's not thinking about that. Mary's just a 13 or 14-year-old little girl who's pregnant, who's with her husband, and they're committed to each other. This is an earthy scene where they're all in together to be married. Joseph has swallowed it. They've not had any children yet. They've not consummated, but he believes the word of God, and he's with his wife, and he's, he's committed, and he's humble, and they're being submissive not only to the law of the land and not only to Caesar Augustus, they're being submissive to the Lord together as humble teenagers on this very difficult journey. These are the details leading up to the most dramatic event in history, the most dramatic birth We find this drama in verses 6 and 7. Again, this is contrasting the world secular leader, Caesar Augustus, with the humble, sacred, perfect leader and king of kings, Jesus Christ. Look at the sacred, humble birth of Christ found in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, And while they were there, this is in Bethlehem, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, verse 4 says they went to Bethlehem, and this was all because of the lineage of David, to be registered. They were betrothed. Mary was with child. And then very time-sensitive language enters into the narrative. That's verse 6. While they were there. Now, this is at the end of Mary's gestation period. Um, And I want to give a little bit of a corrective here. You know, in the stories or dramas or plays or different um, settings or, or plays of this event, you would probably see Mary and Joseph very nervously beating on doors from house to house, trying to find a place for them to, to have Mary give birth, as if she's in labor as they're entering into Bethlehem. That's not how Luke draws this up. 
Dr. Luke, remember? He's probably delivered a few. So, I mean, he's, he's very specific with what's going on here. And he's saying, look, it was a, around the time of her birth. In other words, they enter into Bethlehem, and it is locked up with people. It's jammed, and there isn't a place, verse 7, for them except for an inn. But the place that they went was a, a valid room for them to settle into. And I believe they, they set up, you know, camp there for a while. So that's what's going on. There's no direct reference or any reference at all to a grumpy old curmudgeonous innkeeper. No room here. Go to the stall, you young people. It's not like that. It's, it's just a practical place for them to go and set up. In fact, an inn at this point um, in history was more like a, a cave-like room. You know, you would have several of them lined up like caravans put together. And you, this is a cave-like room where they went. And it was earthy and it was basic, but it was their setting um, as they entered into this time where Joseph knew that the birth of his son was, was imminent. And let me just say this, or birth of a baby was imminent. And he knew it was a son because he knew it was Jesus. But let me say this. Um, the baby probably came early. And it wasn't maybe their perfect timing for having a baby. But you know what? It was God's perfect timing for them to have this son. It's God's perfect timing. Again, is God into the details of your life? Is he, my friends? He is. Down to the very specific breaths that you breathe. He's involved. He's orchestrating events for his purposes, for his good and his glory. And this dramatic, significant event reflects the sovereignty of God. Not only in the macro, but in the micro details of your life. God is in control and he's sovereign. That's a good theme to grab onto during the Christmas holidays. We hear about the birth of Christ. Now, Jesus, verse 6 comes to the world and while they were there the time came for her to give birth what does this look like well first of all let me just uh you know point out to you that you know joseph and mary they may have thought of themselves as pawns in this time you know pawns under the hand and rule of augustus but they were being they were being perfectly set up for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Let me read to you a quote from Kent Hughes. He said, They appear to be helpless pawns caught in the movements of secular history, but every move was under the hand of Almighty God. The Messiah would indeed be born in tiny, insignificant Bethlehem as the virgin traveled her steady beating heart, hidden from the world, kept time with the busily thumping heart of God. Now, as God came in flesh into the world, what did that look like? Was that, you know, in a nicely swept stable with animals, you know, braying in the background, keeping time with a baby who made no cry, you know, and, and you know, there's no blood, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing going on here. It's just, you know, it's, it's holy birth. No, this was a very dramatic and very vulnerable scene. This is God revealing himself at the height and depth of hu humility and vulnerability. So vulnerable was this situation that you have, you know, a mommy who's 13 screaming, no doubt, 
a husband. And I remember, you know, the first child that came my way, right? I didn't become an expert till number six, and I still wasn't an expert, you know? I, this is scary. This is vulnerable. This is difficult. This is the fumbling hands of Joseph trying to help out with the birth of the Savior of God coming into the world. Let me read to you another quote from Kent Hughes. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. There was sweat and blood and pain and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made contempt a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. This is the baby Jesus. Let me just pull over for a second. Why, why did God do it this way? Remember, God's very specific about the details, and we get Micah being fulfilled in prophetic specificity in Bethlehem, and it all connects, and it makes sense that Jesus is God, the Messiah. We get that. But let me just make it one step more practical in terms of what point God was making by having Jesus be born outside, in public, in this way. One person put it this way. They said, had Jesus been born in Nazareth, surrounded by, you know, Mary surrounded by, um, you know, different women, you know, her mother's comfort in, in a quiet sort of private setting that nobody would know about, then people would have stopped talking about this event 20 years later. No, instead, this was a very public scene where it was a packed house in a small area hearing the biggest deal event, hearing a baby cry, right? That couldn't have been timed any better. Hearing a baby scream and a mom scream as this baby is being born outside in the cold. It was so that it would be a public and known event, and it was very providential. I think a lot of times we wonder, why am I put in this situation? Why did I have to go through this? Why did this public event happen to me? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Because God had a plan around those circumstances, even public ones. It's his purposes that are rolling on. And so, again, Jesus was on time, perfect time in Bethlehem. He was God's son, and he was humble. Let me go back to the idea of Jesus being God's son, this is picked up in a little phrase in verse 7, and a specific word. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That word firstborn is a significant word. It's prototokos, and it's the same word that's used of Jesus Christ in Colossians 1.15. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Well, in, in this case, obviously, Jesus was Mary's firstborn. This is the Immaculate Conception. This is the Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, as the Son of God, was separated from the line of sin that entered into our world at the sin of Adam and Eve. 
So Jesus is uniquely the son of God as the firstborn in this scenario. But firstborn does not mean that Mary didn't have other children. Um, There's an account in Mark that talks about how there are half-brothers and half-sisters that came around Jesus where Jesus had siblings. We'll hear about that tomorrow night at the Christmas Eve service. John chapter 7 shows Jesus mocking unbelieving brothers who were urging Jesus to show his miracle power off if indeed he's the son of God. These brothers are later um, noted as believing after the resurrection. But Jesus was the firstborn. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it, the word firstborn goes back to the account in the Pentateuch and Numbers and the book of Exodus as the firstborn son had rights and privileges unique to himself in a family. When you had a firstborn son in Jewish law and history, that son was the owner and rightful heir of all things. Now, in the account of Jacob and Esau, Esau was first to arrive and then Jacob second, but Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, right? You know the story. And Jacob became the rightful inheritor of the father's wealth. This is a term that means that Jesus as firstborn is the owner of all things. And Jesus, not as created, but as creator, is the heir of all things. That's the point of Colossians 1.15. Guess what, my friends? Jesus owns all the glory He's king of kings, and he's lord of lords. And this is a foreshadowing of that fulfillment and that understanding in this word, in the most humbling, humbled, pauper-like situation where two teenagers are directed by a world ruler, go up this direction, uphill, in the winter, in the cold, to Bethlehem, at my whim, go there to a packed little town where there's no place for you to be except for a small little cave room, and let the Son of God be born out in the cold in this situation in a dramatic way, and he's the firstborn. He's Lord. That's what God says. Not this secular ruler. That's not God. This is God. This prototokos, this firstborn, is God. Amen? Jesus is God. And we get that by faith. We understand that this sacred king, this humble king, is the only one qualified to be savior from our sins. He's it. He's it. This is God made vulnerable. He was humble so that we could go free and be forgiven of our sins. He was specifically, another detail here, wrapped in swaddling clothes or cloths. He was, he was mummified. This is what um, poor um, women did to protect the baby from scratching himself and from hurting himself. And it was a way to keep the baby warm. He was, he was wrapped tight. And together, we, Judy and I used to wrap our babies up, as you did, with baby blankets, and we'd call it baby burrito. Anyway, this is what happened. This is, this is a very intimate, personal detail that, that he was wrapped tight as an infant baby and laid 
in a manger or a feeding trough. I mean, that, you know, that is uh, what we have here for the Son of God. There was no place for them in the end. There was no, no place but the uniquely, perfectly timed, perfect place in the palm of God's sovereign hand for this to happen exactly the way God wanted it to so that he could be our humble and perfect king. It's hard to rec- rec- recognize and reconcile the sovereignty of God or his perfect plan in our lives, isn't it? But if God is this detailed about the Savior's birth, let me reassure you that he is detailed as the sovereign king and orchestrator of your life. He knows you. And if you don't yet know him, I urge you this morning, open your heart to him. Ask God, just like the Philippian jailer who went to Paul and Silas in the jail when the doors were flung open and everybody was still there under his watch and he was blown away by the power of God, that Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Well, this is for all of the world to hear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what? You will be saved. It's a gospel call to the whole world. And if you've not yet believed in Jesus, believe today. This humble king came in this dramatically unique, humble way to shock you so that you'd go, wow, there really is no other way to be saved but to, but to fall at the feet of this humble king. Jesus was called the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And this humble beginning, it bespeaks the humble way that Jesus was to die. He was born humble so that he could die humble on the cross so that you could be saved. He got under you as creator so that you could be saved. So that you could follow this humble king in humility, serving him. Being a Christian is the call to be humble like this. It's the call to to understand your life in the context of God's sovereign plan. It's to be a servant of all, humbled under the gospel. You need a sacred king, not a secular king to save you. Don't look to secular kings. Don't look to secular pragmatism. Don't look to secular humanism. Don't look to secular pleasures. Don't look to secular solutions. Look to the sacred king, the humble king who saves. So what is your response, my friends? What is it? How should you respond to this humble king? Well, let's just look ahead into the story. You know how the shepherds responded? You know how the angels responded? You had shepherds who were watching their fields. They were outside of this scene. They, they, they suddenly were amazed by an angel that was speaking to them. And it says in verse 13, after this angel said for them to go, fear not, verse 10, uh, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is how God sees this event, by the way. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now look at the response here. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's what a saved heart bursts forth and says over this event. Glory to God. The world 
gets emotionally moved by the Christmas story. The believer gets spiritually stirred and ushered into glorious worship by this story. That's what my job is, is to open up the clarity of this moment to you so that your heart can sing glory to God. How did the shepherds respond? Verse 20, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This just summarizes the whole story for me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Do you want to be rich in God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You want to grow in grace? Come back to the basics. Believe the details of God. Believe the details of prophetic fulfillment. Believe the specific details of the coming of Jesus Christ. Believe the specific details of the gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his lordship over the church, and his lordship over your life. Embrace these truths and grow in the knowledge that God is in control of you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we know that the only way to know peace is to know Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Lord, I pray that for those who do not yet know you, that you would give them this real peace this morning. Let them believe. Let them believe these details and let them know that you are in control. I pray that they would fall on their face before you in poverty and in humility, that they wouldn't try to save themselves or look to secular solutions, but in poverty and humility, they would be like Christ and come to know him for the first time. We thank you as believers. We know this Lord who came in humility, who is exalted in the heavenlies, and who is the Lord of all and is Lord over our lives. Let us embrace your sovereign plan for our daily living. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's just stay seated. I, I want to just invite you.